Meditations with Ryan Smallmack. Greetings and welcome to episode 14 of Meditations with Ryan Slomak. I hope you are here in a good headspace, in a good start to your 2024, feeling like January may be behind us, but there's 11 more months this year that you are going to captivate and make awesome. This is a show all about making space for conversation with interesting people. We just want to take a minute and learn from people with interesting skill sets, interesting histories, or just a fun story to tell. Today's episode is with Jenny Johnson, who is a vegan baker out of Rochester, New York. She is also a really talented photographer and a DJ. So we're going to sort of tackle the creative process from all three of those angles, from still image to music to baking and where that overlap is. This is a great conversation about the creative process, about research and development with food, about failure, about moving forward and about constantly reinventing yourself. So without further ado, here is Jenny Johnson. We're going we're gonna to have like a really nice conversation about vegan deliciousness and, and culinary and stuff. But I always want to like kind of just take a step back and like start at, uh, you know, sort of like youth and, and whatnot. And as I was doing research on you, um, you know, I know that like both of your parents were civil servants. You grew up in Auburn, New York, um, and that your dad had like a really interesting sort of career trajectory. And as we talk about your interesting career trajectory, I'm really curious about uh, you sort of your your dad and what what he was into and all the different things that he explored uh, early on in his career. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, absolutely. Um, my dad grew up in Manchester, New York, which is very close to Canandaigua, New York. And after that, he went to uh, the University of Buffalo, where after his second semester, he was promptly dismissed for violating academic probation for failing to meet his GPA average. Um and that set him on a path of kind of explora- exploration and like experimentation. Um, he in in the, that time period, he moved to New York City and he was into music producing for a while. Uh, he was really into photography. He was one of many photographers who photographed the war protest in Washington, D.C., and some of his, of his work ended up in Life magazine. Um, he owned and operated a surf shop in Long Island, New York, called the Endless Summer Surf, surf Shop. And then he finally settled back into going back to school and he went to several different schools. He went to Syracuse University, Utica College and Cuga Community College, and he got his degree. That's an awesome like trajectory. I mean, I just I I love anything that starts off with uh, so and so got kicked out of college and then showed them. Yes, exactly. Yes. And then the other thing that I was just, uh, you know, just taking a step back is that you started, or at least as I understand, you started your sort of like culinary adventure making stuff with your grandma. I did. Um, my grandmother was, um, very, to me, very, uh, exotic and interesting. Um, she, she lived in Manchester, New York, and we would go stay with her on weekends. And it was almost like going on like an exploration. She was very exuberant and passionate. Um, she had a vegetable garden and a flower garden. She played bridge. She cooked, she baked, she did many other activities. Um, and she was, and she was always 
kind of trying to cultivate within me and my sister the idea of exploring and expanding and learning. She would take us to museums, cultural events, concerts, plays. She would take us out to restaurants. Um, she, she would just, she was the type of person that I would hope everyone would have in their life that would expose them to many different things and kind of like cultivate that level of curiosity in one's one's youth. And one of the things that we did together was we baked uh, and we enjoyed it very much. And then when I moved to Rochester and I transitioned into becoming vegan, I kind of veganized all of her recipes. And that was like kind of the foundation of me getting into vegan baking. What were, and I was, that was actually one of the questions that I had is like, um, we'll get to your sort of like journey of being vegan, but like what sort of recipes did you and grandma make together that you were like, I need to find a new way to like have this in my life? We did a lot of classic recipes. Uh, we did like chocolate chip cookies, oatmeal, cream pies. We did like chocolate cakes, uh, vanilla cakes, funfetti cakes. We did, we did pies. We did a lot of pies. Um, we did, we did cinnamon rolls. Um, we did, you know, I think that she would, she was open to, I mean, we did a lot of classic recipes, but she was open to having us do anything that we wanted to do. I think one time, like, I remember eating like this donut that had like cherries in it. And I was like, can we make something like this? And we tried and it didn't work out really well, but like the fact that she was open to letting us try was really great. Was it primarily baking that you guys focused on or were you guys doing like cooking as well? We were doing cooking as well, um, but mostly primarily baking. Awesome. So I, the, I have like so many. And the other thing and the other thing and the other thing, just because like you have such like a varied, awesome history. Um, but before you got into vegan baking, uh, you were like studying photography and you were really you had a, an awesome like career in photo. Is You're giving me a face like why are we talking about this? But like your interest in the still image, I find, I find fascinating because I think it ties into your, your, your baking and the way in which you think about the aesthetic of your work. Um, I would agree with that. Yes. Yeah. So what, what drew you to photography? Like where did that passion start up? Well, that was kind of an activity that I did with my dad and my godfather who owned Seals Camera Store in Auburn, New York. And I, I remember the first time I was eight or nine and I'd always been in like art and like drawing and painting and, and, and other activities. But I think like, I remember the first time I started, like went out to take pictures and my godfather was showing me how to load the roll of film into the camera. And he was, and he said something to me that kind of stuck with me, which was there's 36 frames on this roll of film and you need to kind of think, but not too hard, not think, but not overthink what you're trying to capture in the 36 frames that you're given. And I remember like we, I shot a roll of film, we went into the dark room, we developed it and then we made a contact sheet and he did like the thing with the magnifying glass and he went, nope, 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 nope. And then he took a red marker and he goes, okay, this one might be good. Nope, 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 nope. All right, this one may be good. And and it was very brutal, but it was also a really, you know, because he was showing me like kind of how to think but not overthink 
the creative process. And I think that is like something that I try to intrinsically do with everything that I do. And it's sometimes very easy and sometimes it's very difficult to kind of like tap into like the flow. And so I think that I think with everything I try to do, I just try to channel like the creativity and let it just kind of flow. Interesting. Yes. I feel like there's always those, um, I don't know, there's like little mantras that sort of like feed into us, like in our creative procedures or like the way we problem solve things where like, if we can learn those early or if we can like make them a part of ourselves, the like, we're able to tackle any problem because we're like, oh, it just applies to this theory I learned somewhere else. Exactly. And, and I, you know, I also, there's also another mantra that I kind of like, or experience I take with you. I was seven or eight and I was not doing well in school and it was 100% my fault. I basically had just, I don't know, had gone on strike. I was not doing the work. I was bored. I don't know what it was. And the teacher was finally said, well, we're going to have to call your parents. And so I remember like sneaking into my parents' room and like, and I like, I woke up my dad and I'm like, the teacher's going to call you. I'm in trouble at school. And he goes, are you doing the best that you can? And I went, no. (laughs) And he goes, all right. He goes, I'm going to tell you something. He goes, as long as you do the best that you can, I will always be proud of you. And that's just something that kind of like stuck with me, like through my whole life. Like, I just like, as long as I do the best that I can, that my dad would always be proud of me. And I just kind of like, and that also like, I can be proud of myself. Like as long as I make the the most concerted effort or do the best that I can in any situation, then that's the best that I can do. I think it's a good mantra to live with. Now I'm just thinking like, do the best you can with 36 frames. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So how did you, uh, how did you find your way into veganism? I know that like you and I, um, you know, we met at a punk show, like we were at an earth crisis show and, uh, I was wearing a t-shirt for misfit donuts. Uh, one of your, your previous, uh, culinary empires. And, uh, somebody literally pulled me out of a crowd and was like, he's wearing your shirt. And I thought I was being like mugged. Uh, and then Jenny and I became really good friends because this awesome baker was standing next to this gentleman who had recognized that I was wearing her swag. Um, but obviously like in the punk and hardcore space, um, you know, we were seeing the band earth crisis, who's a very prevalent vegan strategy band. Um, but there's so many different avenues to make it, to make your way into like plant-based life. And I'm just curious, what was sort of like your entry point? What was your gateway? Well, to be, to be a hundred percent honest here. And I, I'm trying like that. I always try to be a hundred percent honest. Um, my gateway was the boy that I was dating at the time because (laughs) I, I was already 90% vegetarian and he was vegan and he was like, he's like, you're already three quarters of the way there. Let me just kind of, and I, I mean, obviously I was aware of veganism and I had been contemplating or pre-contemplating going vegan, you know, but with him kind of like educating me, guiding me and showing me like, it just made the transition so much easier. Yeah. What was, uh, so you make, you make that transition. Like, what was it like changing that part of your life? Like deciding that you were no longer going to eat, you know, eggs and milk and animal products and animal like did that did was it a significant change was it just sort of like eh, business as usual it it was I mean it was not it, it was in no way difficult because I was already not really consuming milk or eggs at that point it was 
you know, it, I mean, it wasn't just one day where I woke up and the light switch went off and I went, I'm vegan, you know, like it was, I mean, it, it was, there was a little bit of a transition there and, but it was not, I mean, it was a very short transition and, you know, and once I went completely vegan, I, I like literally like a light switch went off and I was like, this is the way this is absolutely 100% the way to go. And my hope is, and one of the reasons that I, I, you know, I, you know, like I am a vegan baker is I kind of want to show people, you know, you can eat all of these delicious treats and there's no harm to any animals in these delicious treats. And, you know, and my hope is, Ultimately, everybody, the light switch will go off in everybody's brain and they'll be like, oh, yeah, this is the way this is the path that we need to be going down. And it's interesting, too, just in the sense that, like, you know, I think about like your interest in photography and like that interest in limitation, Um, you know, like I've got 36 frames. I have this much celluloid. I have these chemicals. I have to, like, make these photos function and then, like, to apply that to to baking and and that interest in, uh, all right, I've got these ingredients, I'm removing these, these, this order of operations and I have to rethink these things. Um, I don't know. It's like a fun, creative challenge other than just helping the planet. It's like a cool way to think about cooking. It really is. And one of the, one of the, one of the absolute favorite things that I enjoy doing is R and what I call R and D research and development. And like, I will look at something and I will be like, I will pull it apart and figure it out. And I'll be like, I'm like, I know I can make this vegan. I just have to think about it and figure it out and, and like experiment with the substitutions. And I, it's like, and allowing myself that space to really kind of like make, when I first start the journey to make horrible desserts, like, like this, it's like with the donuts, like, I remember the first time, the first couple of times I made donuts, like I made the dough and I cut the donut and I proofed it. And this is like, and this is like after I'd done tons of research, like read, uh, I like I read a ton of recipes, I vegan and non-vegan recipes. And like I had watched YouTube videos and I like read articles and, and, and then I, I, I was so excited and I put the dough in the fryer and it literally just sank down to the bottom and stuck to the bottom of the fryer. And then after like five minutes, it popped back up and it was completely black. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work. Like, and, and, and like the same thing with the ice cream. When I first started making the ice cream, I was like, the first couple of batches I made, I was just like, this tastes like glue. Like this literally has a texture of glue. And I was like, okay, let's just. Look at the notes because I'm very fastidious. I take very elaborate notes and, and documents and like temperatures and like times and and quantities and grams and whatnot. And I was like, OK, we'll figure it out. I think that's the part of like, I don't know, like we're in this culture right now where like everybody sees everyone doing great things on the Internet. Right. Like. Very few people sit there and like post their like, here's how I screwed up today, you know, unless it's like a mimic gag. And then I think that like it that's one element of our culture that like I really I consistently worry about is just the idea that like 
if I'm not good at it at first, I don't have these natural gifts and I just, it's not my thing and I have to move on to the next thing. Whereas like, I don't talk to a single creative who doesn't talk to me about failure. Failure is definitely part of the process. And I think that through some of my worst failures have come some of like my greatest successes, you know, cause it's like you learn more from your mistakes than you do from your success. And I apply that to not only like the, like creative, the, the creative things that we produce, but also life in general. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's more fun when it's applied to donuts. <laughs> well, donuts and ice cream and other treats. Yes. So my, my first awareness of you, I wasn't aware of, um, which I, I just is, is beautiful. And like one of, as I, as I reflect on my own life, some of my favorite moments are like something happening. And then years down the line, I get clarification of it. So I'm going to, I'm going to embarrass you for a second. Uh, and you, you, I, I don't remember if I've told you this story or not, but, um, a, a friend and I were coming to visit, uh, I, I've been involved with a summer camp for kids with cancer and blood disorders for a very long time. And we were coming to visit, uh, a, a kid who was in hospice and, um, was really like struggling at the end of his, you know, at the end of his years, at the age of seven or something, it was like this horrible, horrible day. And, um, went to my friend and I, uh, who had come up, uh, went to owl house after I was like, we need, we need something to bring us joy. Like we need to, I know I've had a good meal here. And for those who are out of town, uh, owl house is sort of like a, a higher end restaurant in, uh, in, in Rochester that focuses on, um, kind of like modern cuisine, but is, is historically has been very vegan and gluten-free friendly. Um, and we had this meal that was really good. And I was like, it's a dessert day. And we ordered these chocolate truffles and these chocolate truffles come out. And like, still to this day, as like me and, and, and my friend talk about it, uh, it's like, yeah, like that was awful. But like those chocolate truffles, like really just transformed the whole day. Like it was able, it was like a way for us to like eat these things. And then just all of a sudden, just like reflect on like, how horrible the situation was, but like how like these little beautiful things kind of stand out to us. And then flash forward to, we were doing some interview prep months ago and I was unaware that you were the one who created a number of these dessert recipes for Owl House and uh, had created this chocolate truffle that has stayed with me for 10 years. <laughs> yes, that was me. Uh, <laughs> um, it's really funny how I, I got a job at the Owl House. Um, I was hired to shoot the Halloween party in 2012. And the same night that the Halloween party was happening, Hurricane Sandy hit. And my, and I kept waiting for Jeff, the owner, to message me to say, we're, we're canceling the party. And, and he never did. And like my boyfriend's like, I don't want you driving down there in this weather. It's raining sideways or 60 mile an hour winds. I'm like, I was hired to do a job. I have to go. And I showed up and there was like three or four people at the party and they all worked there. And so I set up my photo booth and I like eventually some more people showed up. I don't think as many people showed up as they had expected. And so I was talking to Jeff, the owner, and I, I was like, and I never really had a chance to talk to him before. And I was like, I love, I said, my boyfriend and I are eating here two to three times a week and we love the food, but your desserts suck have the same three desserts and they just like and you never change them and he goes do you know anybody you can do better and I'm like yeah me so they let they gave me like a trial run and then I it then they hired me and I worked there for almost a year and, and then I just kind of was like 
at that point I realized I wanted to branch out a little bit. And so then I uh, went on to rent my first commercial kitchen and open Pudgy Girl Bakery. It's insane. Had you prior to, I mean, obviously, you know, we know that you and your grandma were the greatest bakers in the universe. Like there's no argument there, but, uh, what was, had you had commercial, um, culinary experience prior to doing the Owl House gig? One summer for a very brief period of time, I worked at the Owasco Country Club and that was it. That was it. Fascinating. I, yes. I had never worked in a kitchen before. What, what gave you that confidence and knowledge that you would have the skills that it took to be able to like up their game? Cause it's not like you're stepping into like McDonald's and you're like, Hey, McDonald's pies are only okay. I can make a better McDonald's pie. I mean, you're stepping into a place that like has a certain prestige to it. And obviously you have rapport with them, but like, what made you feel like you were, you were prepped for that type of opportunity? I had, I mean, I'm going to chalk it up to just blind arrogance or like, I, I just knew that one of the, one of the things kind of that clued me into that I was onto something was, um, my, my last year of RIT, I was taking a food photography class. And at that point I was very broke and I could not afford to go buy beautiful desserts to photograph. So I started making them, but you can't just make one cupcake or one cookie or, you know, um, so I would make several, like a batch and I would bring them to class and I would share them with my classmates and they were like, this is delicious. And I went, it's vegan. And, um, and it became like a thing where they were like, what'd you bring this week? You know, like what kind what kind of deliciousness did you bring this week? And I think that, I mean, and also it was, you know, I needed at that point, it was more of a need than a want because I was a freelance photo assistant and I was broke and I needed to make money to pay my bills. And this job offered me a lot of flexibility with my schedule so I could still do the freelance photo assignments. And then it just, you know, it worked out really well. And it kind of gave me that stepping stone that I needed to learn how to like batch up like desserts so I can make larger quantities and, and uh, to be shown how to work in a commercial kitchen. And I credit a lot of that to Brian Van Etten who is, uh, was the head chef at the Owl House at the time. And then now is the owner of Swil- a co-owner of Swilberger and Pizza Wizard. And he, he taught me a lot. And the guitarist for Marathon, one of my and, favorite bands and ever. And the guitarist for Marathon. So yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, uh, these are things that I don't know. So I'm stepping into this ignorantly, but like, um, were you making all the desserts at Owl House? Were you using their kitchen or were you making them offsite and bringing them there? It was a, it was a half and half mixture. Um, their kitchen is very, very small and, uh, uh, but for the most part I was using their kitchen and then I was doing somewhat offsite. Um, yes, they had a very, I, I don't know what the kitchen setup is now. Their kitchen was teeny, teeny tiny when I worked there. I mean, it's literally, uh, for a house. Yeah, yeah. It's literally a converted house in sort of, a. uh, I don't know, just like a little neighborhood. Yeah. It's off just off of Monroe Avenue. It's amazing. Is the, and I guess, you know, it's one thing I'm just curious about, like this is, so this is obviously like your first step into, uh, thinking about wholesale, thinking about like, uh, quantity and how much people are going to be consuming and, and coming up with those equations and numbers. And I like it, I'm, I, you know, the whole, like I was today years old when like, I'm pretty sure I was like in my like 
late twenties when I, when I understood that like, Oh, not all restaurants make their own desserts, which I think broke my heart a little bit. I was like, Oh, like this place that I'm associating with, you know, isn't, it's not made here. It's not really their thing. They're getting it from somewhere else. And I need to figure out who makes it. Um, how did you kind of figure out like those ebbs and flows of, okay, we need X number of desserts. Uh, we need, uh, this variety, you know, these are going to be our busier months. Like, how did you figure those things out? That, 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 that was an education that I was given by Brian and Megan and Jay and the other people that worked there. You, you, I obviously knew like, like bail, like the holidays were going to be a higher demand for, especially Valentine's day, which was crazy. It was my first Valentine's day working in a restaurant. I was like, Oh my God. Um, and I mean, it was just, and they, but I mean, you know, it was a, Owl House is a, I mean, even though they do a lot of business, it's, it's kind of a smaller restaurant. It's not like turn and burn like TGIF Fridays or something like that. But, um, you know, and, and also what was great about that experience was they let me kind of like experiment, like, you know, um, I would, I'd come up with an idea, you know, I would either make it ahead of time or run the idea by Jeff or Brian. I would like, Hey, let's do pies and mason jars. Like, I love this idea, you know, it's very homey, you know, that kind of thing. And they would just be like, okay, do it. And I was like, all right. And, you know, and, you know, like, obviously the weekends would be busier than during the week, you know, and it was kind of like a, you know, like a learning curve. And it was also just kind of like experimentation of what worked and what didn't work. Not everything worked. <laughs> um. Awesome. Well, that's, that's half the fun. I want to, uh, I want one little piece of guided imagery before we start talking about Pudgy Girl, uh, which is, can you just like make our mouths water? Like what kind of desserts were you making for Owl House? You talked about, we talked about the truffles. We talked about pies and mason jars. What are the kind of things did you experiment with at that time? Uh, that's kind of where I introduced the chocolate mousse pie, which I'm still pretty well known for. I still do those every Thanksgiving and Christmas. And, uh, I started, I just, that was the first place I introduced the vegan cheesecake to like, um, I was doing the truffles, the, the pies, I was doing like full size carrot cakes there. Um, and, uh, peanut butter, chocolate brownies I was doing there. And I think that was the first time that I introduced my, Pumpkin pie. So yeah. Lots of pies. Lots of pies. Lots of cookie. I didn't do much cookies there. I did cakes. I I remember doing um the first time this the strawberry cake that I still do that I modified the recipe a little bit, but yeah. So I had I had uh, you just literally unlocked a core memory as I forgot about those cheesecakes. I remember eating one on New Year's Eve once, just like blew my mind. Um, so you, you eventually leave Owl House and go off and start, um, you know, one of your, one of your many, uh, awesome excursions with, with Pudgy Girl, uh, Bake Shop, which was mostly wholesale and special orders, right? And you started in 2013, if I understand. Yes. I, I, I found a commercial kitchen on the corner. It was in, it was in an old, it was in a storage building that had previously been a nursing home and they converted all of the rooms upstairs into storage units, but there was this very large commercial kitchen there they had a dining room attached to it and it was very strange, but it worked. And I, when I first started sharing it, I was sharing it with a caterer and then uh, eventually another business moved in and I, I would work out of that kitchen and 
it was not, there was no storefront at that point. I was doing, um, a lot of wholesale special orders and, and stuff for different restaurants and storefronts here in Rochester. And then that eventually led to once I, that's where I perfected the donut recipe. And the last summer that I was in that kitchen, I was also doing the Southwest farmer's market where I introduced the donuts. So. Awesome. And how, like, what, what were the sort of like life lessons that you picked up running pudgy girl? I mean, you're completely out on your own. It's all you. Uh, I think the most important life lesson I learned from that experience was um, be very, very careful with business partnerships, because one of the reasons that Pudgy Girl had, uh, the main reason that Pudgy Girl had to close was um, I got into a very, what looked like a good business partnership with an investor and it turned fairly sour, fairly quickly. And um, it led to, it led to the demise of the, eventually led to the demise of the business. And so, I mean, and at the time it was devastating, but then it was, it just showed me that something better could come out of, out of that experience. So yeah, that was, that was the most important lesson I learned out of that particular experience. And it's funny because this is our, uh, you know, uh, to the listeners at home who are already jealous that I get to hang out with Jenny. Uh, we got vegan pizza before this at a place called Squatchos, which was really good. And um, while talking about that, we were talking about other local businesses in Rochester. And this is our second conversation today about uh, just the importance of those partnerships and like making sure that you really are able to like vet out who you're doing, your, like who you're working with and what their values are and all that. And I mean, in like not, I mean, I think it was, part it once again it was you know it was almost 10 years ago and I think I was much more naive then than I am now and and it you know it goes back to if it looks like it's too good to be true it probably is too good to be true you know and so I think that it's just important to like if you you know one of the one of the piece of advice is that I can offer anybody that's going into business is like if somebody approaches you and they want to be part of your business you know, whether they want to be a silent partner or like be more of an active partner, just make sure that your visions align is, and basically, you know, have many, many discussions, not just one or two discussions about that, but, and really kind of like, as you said, vet them carefully, you know, and talk to other people that they've been involved with if you can, and just, just tread lightly is, you know, until you are 100% sure that this person is going to be a positive influence and not a negative influence on your life. Absolutely. And it's hard, you know, the term vision is something that I think a lot of people struggle with. We're like, no, no, I'm just going to open a vegan donut shop. And that, you know, sure, that that is what one can do. But there's so many other elements, like what kind of vegan donuts are you making? What's the, you know, what's this, what's that? And uh, I think that oftentimes in those sort of like partnerships, it's just so focused on like, oh, the money works or we have the space and the resources we need. Not necessarily that like both of us are traveling in the same direction at the same time at the same speed. Exactly. And I think another piece of really great advice that I got from a photographer, his name is Kurt Brownell that I worked for. um, And I, and I remember this just about every single day. And he said this to me, he goes, 
because he's self-employed, obviously, as a freelance photographer. And he goes, Jenny, nobody will ever care as much about your business as you do. Nobody. He goes, because it's not their business. It's yours. And you have to be very careful and curate yourself very carefully, you know, and everything that, and everything you do has your name on it. You have to remember that. Yes. A million times. Yes. I think that like, that's one. And and the other thing too, is if you are running a business or you're doing something and you don't care about it as much as other people, that's its own set of problems too. Exactly. Yeah. Great. This is, I didn't expect business 101 here, Jenny. I'm already (laughs) reflecting on how to run mine. Um, so, so pudgy girl, uh, you know, you move on from that, you, you end that partnership. Um, and then you jump into misfit donuts, uh, aggressively artisanal as, uh, as your, your quoted as being, um, which, you know, for people who uh, have not heard of misfit donuts, uh, it was on, uh, started off on upper, Mon- upper Monroe. Yes. Right? We were in upper Monroe near Cobbsville park. Yeah. And it was, uh, you know, yeast raised brioche style donuts, uh, is what sort of kicked off at. Tell us about your like donut journey. Like how did misfits come to, to be, uh, misfits? Well, I love eating donuts and like, like, and I, and I was like, I need to make myself a donut. And going back a little bit to pudgy girl, I I remember the day that I was, I had been working on it and working on it. I finally think I'd gotten the recipe and I texted or Facebook message, like eight of my friends. And I was like, Hey, do you guys want to come to my kitchen and dry some donuts? You know? And and like they did, like eight of them descended on the kitchen in like record land, land record speed. And they came in and like, I remember a friend of mine, she had like really long hair and she's like, I just want to be alone with this donut. And, um, but I mean, so I love, you know, and I love, I love making donuts and I also love, love, love pop culture. Like I am like the biggest pop culture geek or one of the biggest pop. I know I'm sitting here with another pop culture geek. And so like, I wanted to have fun with like the donuts, you know, giving them cute names and like reinterpreting like the Darth Vader and the cookie monster and princess Leia, the Yoda, you know, we did like one weekend, we did a Marvel theme, you know? So it was just, it was, it was, it was, it was a lot of work. It was just, it was a lot of fun. What was like, um, how do I say this? Like, uh, cause that, that you could write a book just about running Misfits Donuts. I mean, the amount of like crazy things that happened, uh, in, in regards to like running that, but like how we talked a little bit earlier about like making the dough and then popping it in the fryer and then getting like, you know, a new chunk of coal for Christmas, essentially. Like (laughs) how did you like run that sort of research, research and development component of donut testing? Cause it's like, instead of something where like previously you'd kind of like we're doing all desserts and now we're doing bakery items wholesale. Now you're going to do a point where like, you're really like honing in and you're doing something that's like very specific. Like how did you jump into that trial and error system? Well, I mean, once again, it was just a ton of research. I went online and for me personally, I don't, I don't know if this applies to anybody else, but I, cause there was a ton of vegan donut recipes out there, but I was like, I was like, this isn't, this isn't quite it. So I started looking at like, regular like quote unquote omni recipes and I started once again just like pulling it apart and figuring out what was what was the what how are how are they doing it and how can I replicate that but make it vegan and 
at the same time that was happening, there was a discovery made in the vegan community called aquafaba, which I'm not sure if you're uh, familiar with, but I'll kind of run it down for you. Somebody somewhere along the way, I think in 2015, discovered that if you take three, like, chickpea liquid which is the when you take a can of chickpeas and you like open it up and usually pour it out has the same identical quantity like um qualities as eggs like egg whites and so i was like this this is something here and i was like all right i need to start using aquafaba and the recipe is an egg binder and so that was that was a breakthrough for me at that point and so i just remember like i had at one point 20 pounds of chickpeas in my kitchen and I like put a message out to Facebook to like on the Rasher Vegan group, if you want chickpeas, bring your containers and come to the kitchen at Budgie Girl Bakery. And, like people just came and took like 10 pounds, like five or 10 pounds of chickpeas. <laughs> and then I actually uh, worked out an arrangement with Andrea, the owner of the fern, where she would like start saving me chickpea juice because they go through a lot of chickpeas there. And even to this day, that's where I get my aquafaba from is Andrea at the fern. And so, but that was, that was, that was kind of like the ignition point at that point. Yeah. And, uh, for those unfamiliar, Red Fern is, uh, an awesome vegan restaurant in, uh, in Rochester that is just, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. I just, you they're got- fantastic. They're all American comfort food and Andrea, they just celebrated their 10 year anniversary and Andrea is a fantastic person. She's one of my favorite people in the entire world. Well, it's one thing I'm curious about. I was debating asking this later, but I think this might be a good moment is that like, um, the inherent partnerships that you develop with people, like we talked about the bad partnerships, right. But like, you know, uh, you know, Andrea at Redfern or, you know, just in general, like, Hey, there's the Rochester vegan community or whatever. Like how has that, how have those relationships or those feedback loops sort of like benefited you as a baker? It's not only benefited me as a baker, but just is just an overall experience living here in Rochester. I, I really feel that, you know, it's, it's important to cultivate a sense of community, you know, and I really love the fact that, you know, I can, I can bounce ideas, problems and issues off of Andrea, the owner of the fern and Rob, the owner of grass fed, you know, because I think it's just when you when you own a food establishment, there's a certain level of stress that I don't think people necessarily, I think they kind of have a, like a, like a surface understanding of, but not like a visceral understanding of. And I think that just being able to like talk to somebody who's in the same exact boat as you are, it just, it is just, it's an amazing stress reliever, like a collaborative partnerships that just really kind of help in so many different ways. Yeah. I think there's always this idea that like some people think that like vegan food is a niche business, right? Like that if you're, you know, if I'm going to be the, the vegan dessert people in Rochester, there can be no other vegan dessert people in Rochester. Like, and that's not how these communities function. That's not how money gets spent. You know, like when people are able to like help rise the tide for everybody, it just, it benefits the whole community and it helps putting everybody else on the map. And that's exactly how I feel. And that's exactly how Andrea feels and Rob and, um, and like, you know, there's so many other people here. I I think that, you know, like, you know, it's not, you you can't be 
an island in the sea completely alone. You have, there has to be like collaboration, communication, you know, like just, just be willing to talk to people and, and let people in, you know, because it's, you know, to be, to be a business owner is very stressful and, you know, to be able, as I said before, to kind of like to reach out and, and talk to somebody about whatever like issue problem or even idea that you have is just a fantastic resource. It's a game changer. It, it really is. It's like 100% game changer. And I, I value, like, I think that, I think that one of the things that I love most about living here in Rochester is just the relationships that I have built with the people in the community, not just the vegan community, the community in general, but especially the vegan community. That's awesome. Uh, so with Misfit Donuts, um, it, I'm debating whether we should talk about trials and tribulations. Uh, and, but you know, you had a fire (laughs) in the business next door. No, it was a fire in the building. What happened was I was just finishing the expansion into the space next door. I had gone through a pretty arduous process with the city to get rezoned, which I did not even, once again, I was not even aware that when you expand your space and go from a what's called a takeaway restaurant to a sit down seating restaurant, that there are it is a very arduous process of going before the zoning committee and getting like a zoning variance and 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 then hiring a contractor and doing the expansion and the building permits were still open like we were we were just finishing up the expansion and then. Uh, March 27th, I I had a friend who lived across the street above the shoe repair shop. And all of a sudden, like at 4.30 a.m., my phone starts going ding, 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 ding. And she goes, and she's messaging me on Facebook Messenger. And she's like sending me pictures. And she's like, your building's on fire. And I was like, oh, my God. And I immediately run down there. And I'm watching this happen. And I think that I kind of just went into shock. and. Like, I just like, it was like my friend of mine took me into her apartment, you know, she's like, let's just stay up here for a while. Cause we don't want to get in the firefighters way. And, and then that morning I, I showed up around 4.45 AM and around 9 AM I was there when the fire, the uh, fire representative told the, like the building owner and the building maintenance manager that it was arson. And there was, what happened was there was apartments above the shops and there had been an incident where uh, this woman had started the fire and it was, it was surreal. I've never really, I honestly have never, and I hope to never go through anything like that again. I had never been through anything like that before. And, um, but the, once again, the outpouring of love and support that I received from the community was really instrumental in helping me get back on my feet. I mean, it was just, it was phenomenal. I have never, once again, I never experienced anything like that before either. I mean, people had fundraisers. We had a fundraiser at Photo City and like several businesses set up to like sell stuff that like gave me the proceeds from and like, like all the proceeds and like all these bands came out to play, you know, and it was just fantastic. And it, I mean, I can't tell you how thankful I am that you guys were able to find a new location and, and get going. And then as we talked about earlier, get somebody else in your old location and, and make sure that that, you know, like benefits uh, you, but like, I can't 
like one of the questions I, I, I have here that I was like thinking about is like, how do you think about like rebuilding yourself? Cause like it, in, in that instance where like you've worked so hard to accomplish A, B, C, and D, and then all of a sudden, like call it an act of God, call it, you know, bad luck, call it like, you know, uh, I don't know, rolling the dice the wrong way. Like something completely out of your hands, just like cuts your business in half right? Like it just, it destroys it. Like, how do you, like, how did you, or how do you like force yourself to like attain new perspective and push forward? Like, what is your strategy for that? Well, I mean, it, it, I definitely kind of turtled at first. Like I just kind of like, just kind of coiled a little in myself. And, and then I was, and then a friend of mine was like, he's like, this is, you know, he, he's in this, this is a, friendship that I value very much because he's very sage and he offers like the best advice to me when I need it. And he's like, this is a turning, this is, uh, this is a fork in the road. You, you can either, you know, you, you can either reopen it, you know, you can get up, you can get, get up, brush yourself off and like pick up, or you can just kind of like call it a day, you know, wipe your hands and just be like, I'm done. And he's like, but the choice is ultimately yours. And, you know, you, you kind of like get to pick what you want to do here. You have a little bit of leeway. And I was like, I was like, well, I'm not done. I still have more to say. And so let's, let's pick myself up, brush myself off and like move forward. And that's exactly what we did. I admire your way to just be so candid about that. Like (laughs) I have more to say is a really powerful statement. Yeah. And was it not to try to get overly deep, but like, I've got more to say in donuts. I've got more to say as like a business owner. I've got more to say as like self-proving something to the universe. Like what were you thinking? I think it was just proving myself to the universe and also um, just like just kind of utilizing this form of expression. You know, like I, you know, I love the fact that I, I kind of look at what I do now is like I'm expressing the creative voice within me. And I think that that's kind of what it boils down to. It's weird that like people say that I'm a business owner because I never liked, like I think of myself more as a creator than a business owner. And I know that I have to wear the hat of business owner, but I, I love the fact that I get to be like the creative first and foremost, and then I get to be the business owner. I think that's an important distinction. Yes. Um, so misfits donuts, uh, I just want to say I also got into the art of making breakfast sandwiches by the end. And, uh, I have a very vivid memory of, uh, I had to drive to Buffalo to pick up some equipment and was like, I'm stopping and getting a breakfast sandwich and some donuts from uh, misfits donuts. Uh, and it's another core memory. So thank you for that core memory. I love breakfast. I mean, I absolutely like, it's my favorite meal of the day. I could eat it morning, noon, and night. I am all about breakfast and, and I, we had, we had done at the old location and even at the new location, we had the first iteration of the breakfast sandwich, which were on the donuts. And although they were delicious, it wasn't exactly what I wanted. And, but it was kind of like, once again, going through trial and error, seeing what worked and what didn't work. And then we finally hit on the breakfast, the finally the breakfast sandwich that we ended up doing or the several different variations of the breakfast sandwich. And it was just kind of like, that's it. 
because I think you had like you had like a chicken one and or like and you had one that was like a spicy with pickles or something like that. We like, had we had several. We had the McLovin, which was the impossible sausage, just egg patty, chow cheese with our homemade garlic aioli. And then we had the, the McGrass fed, which had the vegan bacon. Then we had the McChicken and then we had the Nashville hot. That was the one I was thinking of. Yes. Uh so I now want breakfast right now. If someone is listening to this episode at six in the morning, please go make a vegan breakfast sandwich in our honor. Um, so uh, just two more from me. Uh, one is uh, we're going to switch gears entirely, which is um, we're both pop culture, pop culture, pop culture junkies. I also can't articulate. So let's try that again. Uh, we're both pop culture junkies. Um, and you have now started your own radio show. You're on WAYO Rochester 104.3 um, doing a lo-fi radio show where you're playing soundtracks. And I'm just really curious about uh, your sort of, you know, obviously we're in the podcast medium right now. Like uh, what got you interested in doing radio? And then uh, tell us a little bit about your soundtrack show. Well, I've been a huge, huge fan of Wayo ever since they um, they started here in Rochester, and I, I was a supporter of them. I was an underwriter of theirs when I first opened my shop, my original location at Misfit Donuts and Treats. Um, I've always, I've always been fascinated by radio, but I've always like, I like the, I like, I love, I love the. Um, the soundtracks can always bring you back to the experience of watching the movie again. And you can kind of relive it by listening to the soundtrack. And I love that connection. And so I, I, and I, during, during the show, I talk about the mute, the movie, the release date, the director, the plot, like the actors, you know, and I try to talk about like how it influenced me a little bit. So, yeah. I just also think it's cool because the soundtrack I, the the medium of the soundtrack is something that I don't think is appreciated as much as it should be. And just, there's so many like awesome B sides and like, just like hidden features to like these things that um, truly move us emotionally that we just don't pay attention to. I agree. And also I like the, I also, I like the idea of kind of exploring how a soundtrack really kind of like almost sets the tone in a way, like not the entire tone, but like partially contributes to the, the tone of the movie because if you think about like if the if that particular music wasn't in that movie, how would that movie be different or perceived differently? Yeah, when I'm teaching like audio production or when I'm teaching production of any kind, I always like teach my students that like the video can be almost anything, but the audio is the part that like is probably the spine of the entire piece. And if your audio doesn't work, uh, no one's going to react to it. It's, you know, no matter how powerful your imagery is. Cause it, it resonates and reinforces the video, like the visual of the piece. What are some of your, what are some of your favorite soundtracks to share with your audience? Oh, there's just so many, there's so many. I mean, I like, I mean, I have a list, like a running list of like soundtracks that I want to play, but I think that, um, like I was really a huge fan of like the Goodwill Hunt, the Goodwill Hunting soundtrack, which had Elliot Smith on. It was featured Elliot Smith pretty heavily. Um, like the Basquiat soundtrack was a lesser known movie. It came out in 1996 about Jean Michel Basquiat. Uh, I just played the Priscilla soundtrack, which is the new Sofia Coppola movie that is about Priscilla Presley. Um, just about all the Quentin Tarantino soundtracks. Um, all the John Hughes soundtracks, like love them. 
And like, there's like, I like gravitate towards lesser known indie movies, like the movie Chef that had John Favreau. I love that soundtrack so much. That soundtrack made that movie 100%. Yeah. And it's about food. And it's about food. I love that movie for so many different reasons. Oh, it's so good. Uh, the scene where he's giving, he's giving his son a knife. It's like this like kind of gesture of, uh, you know, demonstrating that like you're ready for this responsibility and I'm ready to share this part of my life with you. I just uh, makes me, makes me giddy. Yeah. And like that scene where he pulls his son out of like the food truck. Cause like his son's like he, the son burned the sandwich and he's like, I, you know, I, I may not be good at many things, but I'm good at this and I want to share this with you. And that just resonated with me so much. Love it. And uh, I always want to just make space for you to uh, bring up anything we didn't talk about. Is there any sort of topics or ideas or anything that we haven't covered in this conversation that you, you want to put out there? Well, I think we covered a lot. <laughs> we did. I think we did a good job of restraining our pop culture junkiness today. Exactly. Um, well, Jenny, thanks so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure. Well, thank you so much. I really, this was so much fun. I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Jenny Johnson and found it as insightful as I did. I feel like every time I talk to her, I learn something new about the creative process, and it really just gets me excited. If you are interested in following Jenny, I strongly encourage you to tune in to WAYO and listen to the uh, killer soundtracks that she makes available to everybody. If we move ahead to our next episode, episode 15 will be dropping on Valentine's Day, and I know that's a day that is fairly controversial, and people always think about how alone you might be in the universe or uh, you sort of rethink your relationships or you just really appreciate those who are around you. We are going to use this as a unique opportunity to focus attention on ways to help others. We will have Daniel Spoiler on the show. Daniel is the founder and president of Project Pinball. Project Pinball is a charity that puts pinball machines in children's hospitals to make sure that kids and families and doctors and nurses have something else to focus their attention on other than the trauma that is being experienced with these sort of different medical treatments. So if you are interested in learning about Project Pinball, understanding uh, how charities operate, how they start, how they function. This will be a really great, insightful conversation for you. So tune in to Meditations with Ryan Zlemek on all your favorite podcast apps on February 14th for that interview with Daniel Spoiler. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share the show. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook at The World of Ryan Zlomek. I promise it's a fun time over there in social media. Thanks for all that you do. Please remember to make space for conversation because you just might learn something.